Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Censored, a podcast for the filthy-minded. My name is Aoife Vrtnach, and I make this podcast because my mind is in the gutter. Yes, I know Oscar Wilde waxed lyrical and said, we are all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. Personally, I think he undersells the gutter. Nothing wrong with a bit of filth. I do have a Patreon page, Censored Pod, if you can support the show. And thank you to Lawrence M., a fellow smut seeker, for signing up. This time, I'm discussing Muriel Sparks' The Bachelors, from 1960. This is Sparks' fifth novel out of 22, written between 1957 and 2004. 22 novels. Just incredible. And she wrote essays, poems, short stories, and an autobiography at the same time. She was a writing machine. Her personal life was interesting, from her disastrous marriage at 19 to the rumoured lesbian relationship in her later years. Check her out, she's really quite fascinating. This book features a large cast of interlocking characters, mostly single men and single women. I'm going to choose just one strand to talk about, the characters whose narratives are most concerned with sex. It's such a rich text, though it is also light and funny. Some of the plot highlights are crazy relations, forgery, blackmail, and possibly fake mediums. There's also a gripping murder plot and a gay fake priest. This book is a real riot. Spark is satirical, but not needlessly cruel or exploitative. You can laugh at the portrayal of the bachelors and sympathise with them for their small, aimless lives. All of the characters have obvious human failings, but only one is a really nasty piece of work. Because there are so many characters, themes and plots, I'm selecting just a few people to talk about. It would be very confusing if I tried to include everyone. So for the purposes of this podcast, I will focus on four characters. Patrick, a medium and a con man who's in a relationship with Alice. Elsie is Alice's best friend, and she's sleeping with Matthew, a conflicted Irish Catholic. 
but she also has an intense emotional relationship with Father Socket. I'm leaving Aunt Marlene aside because she's not central to the sex narrative, but I could do a whole episode on her alone. It was quite easy to choose a beverage to go with The Bachelors because it's stuffed with food and drink. I'm going with a cup of coffee accompanied by a slice of walnut cake. When one character nearly chokes on a walnut half from the cake, she suffers acute social embarrassment. There's a lot of social awkwardness played for laughs in this book, so potentially lethal cake fits quite well. Because the characters are modern young people, they drink coffee rather than the traditional English tea and eat fancy cake. If coffee is not your thing, choose something slightly pretentious to accompany this journey into singledom in London in the late 1950s. I would argue there are lots of good reasons from the Irish censor's point of view to ban the book, but certainly the first thing that would have caught their eye is in chapter two. Patrick, the medium, is due to appear in court to answer charges of fraud. A former lover has accused him of swindling her. If found guilty, he will go to prison. This is a terrible problem for his current girlfriend, Alice, because she's pregnant. However, Patrick has a solution, and this is the discussion he has with Alice in Chapter 2. I only... Patrick said softly, stroking his silver-yellow hair with his thin grey hand and gazing at Alice with his pale juvenile eyes, wanted to put it to Alice that after Tuesday and when this unfortunate occurrence is over, we could make a fresh start if she would see the specialist and have something done before nature takes its course and... I won't have an abortion, Alice said. I'd do anything else for you, Patrick, you know that but I won't have it done. I'd be terrified. There's no danger, Patrick said. Not these days. So there we go, Patrick advocating an abortion for his girlfriend. Obviously, abortion was completely unacceptable content from the censor's point of view. This book might not have been banned because it told people about the mechanics of abortion, but even references to the procedure were unacceptable. Alice's pregnancy is an important aspect of the book, meditated upon by a number of characters. Alice, I think, wants to be pregnant, and she hopes to marry Patrick, thereby fixing the practical problem of having a baby outside wedlock. I found this relatively drama-free unmarried mother plot quite interesting. In Ireland, we are once again talking about pregnant single women and their treatment by churches, state and society. We are digging through the shame and fear associated with single motherhood that led to concealment, secrecy and silence from the 20s through to the 1990s. You literally couldn't find a more emotionally fraught topic in Irish society right now. But in Sparks' book, written in the late 50s, Alice suffers no judgmental moralising or social shaming. The pregnancy is bad timing, but she's not distraught over it. She is more worried about its effects on her diabetes than on her reputation. Even her refusal to have an abortion comes from her health concerns rather than a principled moral position. For the Irish censors, this pragmatism about pregnancy would have been deeply shocking. Nobody is upset. Nobody throws a fit. 
This complete lack of drama would have been incredible to an Irish contemporary reader, seeing as at this time single pregnant women were nearly compelled to live in institutions to hide their shame. Alice and Elsie are very relaxed about sex. They discuss it casually, including the risk of pregnancy. I'm going to read out one of those girl chats from chapter 9 between Alice and Elsie. Elsie is talking about her sex with Matthew and his terrible onion breath. I'll return to that later, don't worry. I just love the cosy intimacy of their chat. Disgusting, Alice whispered. Onions. They laughed as they sat in the darkening room, in a downscale trill, one following the other. It wasn't funny at the time, Elsie whispered. He didn't go right on to the end in case I got a baby, I suppose. That's what makes me really upset, when they go so far and no further. You don't want a baby without a man to marry you, Alice said. It makes you feel there's not much of a man in them when they only go so far. If Patrick wasn't the man he is, Alice said, he wouldn't be much of a man. It's a lovely evocation of close, companionable chats in the flat late at night between girls. But it's also a calm, pragmatic, girly chat about pregnancy and contraception, and therefore definitely worthy of censorship. Elsie here isn't very rational about sex and contraception, but then who is? She likes sex more than Matthew himself, but she also very much enjoys using sex to manipulate him. Matthew is a man whose hang-ups about sex allow Spark to set up some truly hilarious moments. Matthew and Elsie's first date is in his flat, where he will entertain her. Now, you don't invite people to your gaff unless you're looking to cop a feel, and Matthew is scared for himself. This is quite a long piece, but I'm going to read it out because... I think it's fucking hilarious. And this is from chapter three. God help me with my weakness, said Matthew as he went back to his onion, for he was weak with girls and had a great conscience about sex. It had been easier in Dublin, where the bachelors protected their human nature by staying long hours in the public houses. He was not sure what he would do with Elsie. He had to prepare some supper, but she would do the cooking. He was not sure what to do with the onion, and he weighed up what the force of Elsie's attraction was likely to be, and how the evening would turn out. It was for this that he had prepared the onion. For he found that the smell of onion in the breath invariably put girls off, and so provided a mighty fortress against the devil, and a means of avoiding an occasion of sin. Matthew was not sure, however, that Elsie called for the onion altogether. She was not very pretty, but you never knew when a girl might show the charm she had within her. And again, the onion might be useful for the supper, to mix with the mince meat. There wasn't another onion left in the box. Okay, three things strike me about this. Firstly, that Irish single men drank a lot in order to avoid talking to women. Secondly, onion breath... That is hilarious. Finally, and possibly the most remarkable, the woman guest was going to cook the meal? Was this normal dating behaviour in the late 50s? 
Christ on a bike, what injustice! Anyway, let's leave that insight into everyday sexism aside and return to Matthew's crisis of conscience. He wants to eat the onion, but knows the meal demands an onion for a flavour, so he bargains with himself that if there is another miraculous onion in the house, he'll eat the peeled one and use the other one to cook with. Luckily for him, there is another onion. I'm telling you, the drama, unbelievable. A small, shriveled onion nestled in the earthy corner among the remaining potatoes. He lifted this poor thing, looked at it, pondered whether it was big enough for the supper. He thought perhaps he should peel and eat this little onion and leave the larger one for the cooking. But then he recalled his previous lapses from grace and the exact terms of the vow he had made before looking into the box. He thought lustfully of Elsie, who would soon be coming back with him to the flat. He seized the peeled onion off the table, ate it rapidly like a man, dabbed his eyes and his brow with his handkerchief, and set off to wait for Elsie at the bus stop. As if forewarning her, he gave her a breathy kiss when she alighted. She drew back only a little. In fact, she took it very well. Oh, that is so funny! It's a wonderful observation on the failings of human nature, the irrational bargains we make with ourselves, and then the horror of meeting onion breath. A first date with onion breath, oh my God. Unfortunately for Matthew, and the self-respect of women reading it, the stinky breath doesn't put Elsie off. And this is how their date ends. She came over and sat on the arm of his chair. She began to finger his black curls. He turned and breathed hard upon her. You remind me of Colin, she said, in a certain respect. He used to be fond of onions and I minded at first, but I got used to it. So I don't mind your onion breath very much. Matthew clasped her desperately round the waist and sighed upon her as if to save his soul. But she too sighed and shivered with excitement as she subsided upon him. It's so perfectly written. I love it. So Elsie shags Matthew in spite of his breath, and he shags her in spite of his conscience. Later on, she admits it wasn't great because he withdrew, and he doesn't really fancy her, so it was a fairly underwhelming experience all round. Spark manages to make a remarkably silly scenario around onions, fun, clever and insightful. Now the sex is not explicitly described, that's the end of it as far as the text is concerned, but the lead up and aftermath leaves you in no doubt that that's what's going on. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Poor Elsie. Imagine multiple sex partners with onion breath. Yeah. But her real interest is in Father Socket. He's not an Anglican or Catholic priest, but a spiritualist cleric. So technically not a priest at all. Some of the characters are not what they say they are, and he's definitely in this category. Elsie has a serious crush on Father Socket and manifests her devotion by typing his letters and listening to his poetry. Like, how awful does that sound? She even steals for his sake, but then her image of Father Socket is irredeemably shattered. When Elsie visits him unexpectedly, there's a man staying in the priest's flat, and her crush dissolves instantly. This is her response from chapter 9. Then she knew, of course, with a kind of exasperation, that the stranger was one of the master's friends, and that they were all perverts, and she had really known it all along. She's further horrified when she notices that Father Sprocket's visitor was wearing lipstick. And this is still chapter 9. She should have known before. Indeed, she had really inside known all along that the master was homosexual, as Alice had said. She could have put up with it, even preferred it if he had no sex at all, was above sex. But if there was one thing she detested... It's clear that she wasn't just exasperated or frustrated with herself for not noticing that Father Socket was gay, but it's the one thing she detested. Elsie may be a modern woman who doesn't care for social conventions around marriage or sex, but gay men are a bridge too far for her. By conventional standards, she is sexually wayward herself. She demands sex from Matthew in exchange for a practical favour. You wouldn't really describe her as shy or retiring in matters of sex. The interesting thing is that Matthew is appalled by her forwardness and calls her a pervert, the same word Elsie used to describe Father Socket. So who exactly is having the right sort of sex in this book? I don't think anyone is allowed to take the sexual moral high ground here. I didn't feel I was rooting for anyone in particular. It's hard to feel sympathy for Alice, whose love blinds her to Patrick's obvious dickishness. I mean, her sexual relationship is just too soppy to be taken seriously. Patrick is a scheming arsehole who uses sex to manipulate people, so you're not really on his side. Matthew's struggles with original sin aren't a deep philosophical problem. The Onion story makes that pretty clear. I kind of think Elsie is the most sympathetic until her nasty prejudice is revealed. 
I mean, her affair with Matthew was doomed from the start because he didn't really like her. He always preferred Alice, her best friend. And if that's not a kick in the teeth, I don't know what is. Then you can't help but like her because she believes Patrick is a git and tells her friend that. But her homophobia makes her malicious and bitter. She is more than usually prejudiced, by the way. This isn't written as a standards of the time thing. While Alice and Matthew hold no strong feelings on gay men, they know Elsie hates them. But I could go round all day about which character is nice or nasty, because they're all contradictory. One minute you like Elsie, the next you don't. Spark excels in complicated characters, even if she favours a light satirical style. Many other authors tell stories about fraud, lies and malice, but few make the subject so feckin' entertaining. But if you do want more profound themes, much of the book is concerned with spirituality and faith. I'm pretty sure the censors would have hated the spiritualism bits, with the dastardly Patrick acting as a medium. Patrick seems to have some supernatural gifts. I never felt Spark cast him as a fraud in that context. He's obviously very nasty, but she doesn't go to town on him as an example of sham spiritualism. Matthew's Catholic baggage is gently mocked, which may have upset the censors. Spark herself was a convert to Catholicism. She really started writing in earnest and successfully after her conversion. So the character's engagement with Catholicism as a faith and a social identity is interesting from that biographical perspective as well. There was one line about Catholicism that made me laugh out loud. Aunt Marlene, who I love but couldn't cover here, is the central spiritualist in the book. She's also one of those aunts that English literature does so well, from Austen to Wodehouse. These formidable females who compel young male relatives to do things for them are very entertaining. Anyway, Aunt Marlene is talking to Ronald, another bachelor and also a Catholic. When her nephew mentions that Ronald is Catholic, she says baldly, I'm anti-Catholic. This is such a genius moment of social tension. Who hasn't been entirely stumped by someone like this? Wonderfully, Spark then offers us a few scenarios on how to deal with this. And this is from Chapter 3. Ronald was used to hearing his hostesses over the years come out with this statement and had devised various ways of coping with it, according to his mood and to his idea of the hostess's intentions. If the intelligence seemed to be high and Ronald was in a suitable mood, he replied, I'm anti-Protestant which he was not, but it sometimes served to shock them into a sense of their indiscretion. On one occasion, where the woman was a real bitch, he had walked out. Sometimes, he said, Oh, are you? How peculiar. Sometimes, he allowed that the woman was merely trying to start up a religious argument, and he would then attempt to explain where he stood with his religion. Or again, he might say, then you've received Catholic instruction? And on hearing that this was not so, would comment, then how can you be anti-something you don't know about? Which annoyed them, so that Ronald felt uncharitable. 
I mean, this is so elegant and funny and wise and profound. Ronald knows he can't win. The trying to debate prejudice in a social context is nearly impossible. I'm sure Spark had lots of odd conversations about her own conversion. She was probably familiar with versions of this scenario. So if you're interested in Catholicism in late 1950s England, this is the book for you. For anyone with less niche interests, read it for the wit. I haven't given away the main murder plotline because it's so good. I don't want to spoil it for anyone. To be honest, you wouldn't read this book for the sex in a smutty way, but it is certainly full of sexual issues. The conspicuous lack of angst around sex is refreshing. Spark is more interested in the comedic value of emotional hang-ups than the pain they cause. And sometimes the idea of sex is funnier than the reality. And now it's time for censorship bingo. I don't know why, but I feel like it should score highly, even though it contains no explicit sex. And to start, breasts. No, this is pretty much a boob-free book. In fact, the most alluring aspect of people is their hair. This shouldn't be surprising, I suppose, in a book written by a woman. Women are obsessed with the power of hair. And I've just noticed that very few of the dirty books I've read so far have said anything about hair. Anyway, no boobs, can't tick that one. Bestiality. Definitely not. It's not that exotic. Sex work. No, not even a hint, actually. Racism. There was no mention of anyone who wasn't white. There was a certain amount of tension around Irish identity, but nothing significant. So I can't tick that either. Drugs. I don't think so. One character has to take medication for epilepsy, but that's not illegal drugs. Politics. No, it's not that sort of narrative. Swearing. Oh, definitely not. The way she writes wouldn't really accommodate swearing. Infidelity. Yes, I can tick this one. Patrick claims to be married, even though not everybody believes him. Next up, crime. There's lots of crime in this book, actually. The abortion that Patrick wants Alice to have is illegal. Homosexual sex between men is illegal. And then alongside these moral-type crimes, there's standard law-breaking such as blackmail, forgery and murder. So yes, definitely crime. Then genitalia. No, not at all. No human body parts identified, really. Abortion. As I said, there's an open discussion of abortion in Chapter 2. And Patrick is also blackmailing a doctor who was suspected of performing an abortion. So the illegal aspect of abortion in post-war Britain is a big part of the plot. Orgies. No, definitely not. Everybody's too repressed for that sort of thing. Sexual assault. I didn't spot anything. Extramarital pregnancy. Yes, Alice's pregnancy is a central theme running through the book. Like I said, no judgment, no moralising, it's just a thing. It's quite a refreshing book to read from that perspective. Masturbation. Oh God, no. Certainly not. Sex toys. No way. Feminism. That's an interesting one to contemplate. 
The women are certainly living independent lives. They're relatively free of their families. They earn a living on their own. It may not discuss feminist principles openly, but I think in many ways these characters are living emancipated lives. The Irish censor would have certainly found these particular single women a bit disturbing, so I think we can take it. Divorce. Yes, because Patrick is supposed to be getting a divorce. This is treated as a good thing, as a simple legal procedure, and there is zero talk over the sanctity of marriage. Next up, contraception. Definitely. I mean, avoiding pregnancy is part of Alice and Elsie's calculations, though they're not very consistent about it. And that Matthew practiced the withdrawal method means we've got to tick that one. Interesting how the Irish Catholic is bothered by the original sin of sex, but not the contraception part of it. Blasphemy. Another complicated thing to consider. I think Sparks' detached consideration of spiritualism would have been offensive to Irish censors. It isn't really blasphemy. Maybe heresy would be a better description from their point of view. But even allowing the existence of the divine outside the right of the Roman Catholic Church is probably a bridge too far for them. Oral sex. No, no explicit reference to sex acts. It is hinted that Elsie is way too into sex, but it doesn't say what she might be into. So leave that to your own imagination. Graphic violence. Definitely not. Everyone's very polite. Queer content. For sure, quite a lot, really. One male character wonders if his impulse to caress Matthew's curly hair makes him gay. And there is a bit of speculation that long-term bachelors are in fact repressed homosexuals. Then, of course, there's the open discussion of the gay spiritualist cleric. So we gotta tick this one, with bells on. In total, then, The Bachelors by Muriel Spark scores 9 out of 25, which is really quite low. I had hoped it would achieve a higher score, but all the sex is implicit. There are no body parts named or even alluded to. Nonetheless, it's a book where sex plays an important role in the characters and the plot. And not everyone wants to read about cocks. Some people prefer implied sex. Not sure those people listen to this podcast, but maybe they're using my censorship bingo as a way to avoid explicit books. Regardless of the smut content, I'm going to recommend you read this book because it's diverting and fun with lots of interesting things to say about human beings and their silly relationships. Next time, I'm tackling a much more famous book than The Bachelors. Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness was at the centre of censorship controversy in Britain and America in the 1920s. My Kindle book claims it's a seminal lesbian novel, which just goes to show why we need to stop using the word seminal. Leaving aside the semen, bring on the lesbians next week. Till next time, keep your hands clean and your minds dirty. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.